Good morning. Today's scripture is from Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the reading of God's word. I want you to think about an, an important question with me, my friends. Really important question. Why does our church exist? I'm sorely tempted to grab this microphone and just go around (laughs) and put you on the spot. Um, But I wouldn't want anyone to do that to me, so I won't (laughs) do it to you. But think about it. Why, Why does our church exist? Not why did we come into being so much as what what are we here for? I think some would answer by pointing to our felt needs. Why does the local church exist? Well, they would point to our felt needs. The, The church exists to provide a buffet of spiritual services. Sense of belonging. Emotionally engaging worship. Opportunities to volunteer, personal growth and development, all for religious consumers who will take their business elsewhere if we don't deliver. Some would answer, I think, by by pointing to social needs in our community. Why does the church exist? Well, we're here to relieve poverty, to comfort the hurting. Support childhood literacy, combat sex trafficking, seek the welfare of the city. There are a variety of well-funded, staff-curated programs. I think some would answer by, by pointing to the moral decline in our culture. Why is the local church here? That the church is here to, to conserve Christian values in a world that's gone crazy. Side note, the world's always been crazy, (laughs) including the 1950s, but that's another message. (laughs) But this is the question, okay? Why does the church exist? How you answer that will have a profound effect on your attitude toward the church and the way you evaluate the church. Examples. Must they play your preferred style of music? 
Some of you got that this morning. Some of you are thinking, this is not at all what I would listen to during the week. (laughs) Uh, must, Must they accommodate your ideal weekend schedule? Or provide a public platform for all of your gifts? Must the church make you feel welcomed and cared for? Must the church say things that you agree with and avoid saying anything you don't want to hear? What does a faithful church look like? That entirely depends on why the church exists. See? Why does it exist? What's our fundamental purpose? What would you say? Well, if you open God's word, like I prayed earlier, and we listen to what he has to say, hear me, friends, There is one answer and one priority and one concern that that looms large over all others. It's, It's the highest mountain, the summit by which every other peak and purpose is measured. Here it is. The church exists to make much of Jesus. That's the answer. And don't give that a, yeah, 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 I knew you would say that. Slow down and think about the significance of that. We're here to make much of Jesus. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, we don't exist for our own sake. For your comfort, for your desires, for my cravings, for my wants, the church exists, Kingsway exists, because God is on a mission to ravish the world with the splendor of his beauty. We exist for Jesus' sake. We we exist so that, that the worth of our Redeemer, the weight of his glory, would be magnified and made visible in the eyes of a world that desperately needs to see Jesus is better. Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is on a mission to make his glory known. So he says something to the world. He says, look over there. Not there, right there. Do you see those people? Do you see that local church? That is a picture of what I'm like. Their words, their affections, their relationships with all their imperfections are a living testimony to my power to save. 
If you want to know me, look at them. Watch them. Listen to them. I hope you realize the most loving thing God could ever do for a world that desperately needs to know Jesus is to show them exactly where to look to see Jesus. Think about that. And he gets that done. How? By gathering his people into distinct, identifiable communities where the people of God are distinguished from the rest of the world. That's what church membership is all about. Please hear this, especially you young people in this room. Church membership is not a Western structural imposition on the organic spiritual relationships in which the real life is found. That's a lie. Church membership is an essential expression of our mission. And in fact... Let's double down on that. (laughs) Distinguishing his people from the world is so essential to God's mission in the world that he hasn't entrusted that work to you as an individual. He's entrusted that responsibility to his authorized representative on earth, the local church. A true local church, here's a definition, is what? A body of baptized believers associated together for the worship of God and carrying out Jesus' commission to disciple the nations. And it's characterized by three things. The right preaching of God's word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the right maintenance of corporate holiness through discipline. But all three of those things help us to do what Jesus charges us to do as a congregation. Because this is his idea, his plan, his mission, right? In Matthew 16, what does he charge us to do? To publicly affirm who is part of our number and who is not just for the sake of being exclusive. No. (laughs) No. So that the world knows where to look to see Jesus. That's why. And if that's a new concept for you, I realize I'm moving very quickly, in case you weren't here last week, to catch you up to speed. Please go back and listen to Caleb's sermon last Sunday. He did a great job preaching on the church's authority. Or pick up a helpful book on this topic. So before we get in too much further into Acts, let me recommend two in particular. The first is Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever. And the second, The Rule of Love by Jonathan Lehman. You can find both those in our bookshop. Why do I mention those? Because I think it's possible that you heard Caleb last week and thought to yourself, man, I am really kind of struggling with all this talk about the church's authority. To be honest, Matthew. Because I've been hurt by the church in the past. Friend, if that's you, please don't let that very real experience, drive you away. Jesus died for his church. Fully aware of all the remaining sin and imperfections 
in his church. And he didn't do that because she's perfect, but because she's his. So instead of running to the golf course or ranting online, can I go there? Do this. Go back to Scripture and with help from a wise brother like Jonathan Lehman, study what God actually says about the church's authority. What it looks like and what it doesn't look like. What, why Christ is glorified when we submit ourselves to a local church through membership. Asking her to affirm and oversee our profession of faith. Bottom line, the world needs to know where to look to see Jesus. And Jesus uses the local church to set his people apart from the world. So, now we're getting to Acts 2. How does he do that? How, how does he do that? How, how, does he, how does he call us to issue a public judgment that says to the world, Look here if you want to see Jesus. Well, that public judgment, that mission, that work, begins with baptism. And that's the focus of our sermon this morning, okay? Acts 2 shows us exactly how baptism works. Caleb preached last Sunday on the church's authority. This week we're on baptism. Next Sunday we'll finish up with the Lord's Supper. And if you look at verse 36 in Acts chapter 2, We're at the end here of the Apostle Peter's first sermon. It was a big deal, and it was a long sermon. And he just finished preaching the gospel. What's that? That the good news that Jesus is God's long-awaited Messiah, who died on the cross to rescue us from sin, the death we deserve, and to give us life. What does he say? Let all the house of Israel therefore know, verse 36, for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, Peter says. But that is not how the Jewish people treated Jesus. They they rejected him, like all of us, right? They, They rebelled against his divine authority. So Peter not only asserts the deity of Christ in verse 36, he also points to the essence of human sin. This Jesus who is Lord in Christ, what? You crucified. That's how you responded. Every wrong thing we think, feel, or do, my friend, today is a similar rejection of his authority. And yet in that moment, the risen Lord gave Peter's hearers a precious gift. It's called the conviction of sin. And that's a gift. They didn't remember no one's perfect or we all make mistakes. They they felt the weight of their guilt before the judge of all the earth. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do we do? We're in trouble. We need help. What do we do? That's the cry of a soul awakened. See, 
A soul that realizes, I'm not right with God. You, you know your sin has separated you from him. You feel guilty. No matter how hard you try, you, you can't find relief. You can't find life. That's a good thing, friend. It's a good thing when you despair of saving yourself. Because that is the gate through which all must pass before we can know the only God who can. Brothers, what shall we do? If crucifying Jesus was the wrong response, what's the right response? Look at verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's loaded. So I want us to ask three questions this morning about baptism in particular. What is it? Who should participate in it? And what happens when we do? What is it? Who participates? What happens when we do? Okay, so here's question one. What is baptism? Repent and be baptized, Peter says. Well, to repent simply means to turn away from sin. To turn away, to, to renounce and forsake them, to, to humbly confess them to God, not as some sort of self-flagellating, woe is me, maybe the more I beat myself up, God will love me. Now that's an exercise in self-atonement. That's not repentance. Repentance is a cry for mercy. So, so why is repentance needed? Why is it necessary in our response to the gospel? Well, because you can't have the world and have Jesus. In short, you, you can't hold fast to sin and hold fast to Jesus. It's not possible. Repentance means turning away from sin, from trusting other people, other things besides God to give you life, for the sake of turning toward Jesus, trusting Jesus to give you life. And yet, notice Peter doesn't say repent and trust Jesus or repent and believe Jesus. He says what? Repent and be baptized. Interesting. The word baptize means to dip or immerse. And in the New Testament, it means to go under the water and come back out of the water. Example, John 3, 23. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because... Water was plentiful there. Pretty clear. But, but why would Peter say that if you want to become a Christian, you have to repent and be baptized? Well, it's because baptism is how faith in Jesus goes public. That's why. And that's really the first answer to our question, what is baptism? I'll give you three, okay? What is it? First, baptism is a profession of faith in Christ. A public profession, faith in Christ. Why do the apostles sometimes tell people in Acts, if you've read the book, to repent and believe, and other times tell them to repent and be baptized? Have they not yet made up their mind on how one is to respond to the gospel? <laughs> no. It's because God says more than just trust Jesus. He says, express your trust in Jesus in a certain kind of way. Think about that. As Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 21, baptism 
is an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's an exercise of faith in what, through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's an expression of faith in Jesus. So, so let's be clear, going under the water, coming out of the water, that doesn't save anyone. Hear that if you're coming from a religious background where you were taught that. It doesn't save anyone. Okay, absent repentance and faith, you do that, you just got wet. Sorry. <laughs> but that's the truth. We are, we're saved through repentance and faith, not baptism. But if you are a Christian, the outward action of baptism is an expression of an inward spiritual reality. It's a public profession of faith in Christ in the way God commands us to express our faith in Christ. That's the first answer. Here's the second. What's baptism? It's also a picture of union with Christ. Back to verse 38. We're just going to mine this verse for a little bit here. Repent, be baptized, he says. It doesn't stop there. Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why would Peter say that? It's because of the, the faith that we express through baptism. Follow me. That faith brings us such that his life becomes your life. His story becomes your story. The the Apostle Paul describes this wonderfully in Romans 6, verse 4. We were therefore buried with him. Notice how much that's going to show up, okay? By baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Praise be to God. Friends, if you're a believer, you would have no hope apart from the union with Christ, the Holy Spirit effects through faith and repentance. You ever wondered why? These are the kinds of questions I think about sometimes. Why why would the Lord command us to be baptized, to profess our faith in Christ, and not climb Mount Kilimanjaro? I would like that. I love to backpack. I love to be up high. Um, Why why not? Why, Why baptism? Okay, I get it, you've commanded us to express our faith in you in this way, but you can pick a lot of different things, I suppose. So what, why this? Why the water thing? Well, it's, it's because baptism is a powerful symbol of two things. When you go under the water, it's a symbol of dying. But baptism declares that when you become a Christian, you die. Die to what? Because I still think I'm alive, Williams. I get you. Follow me. You die to the guilt of sin and the power of sin. It's as if you died when Jesus died. Because all the saving benefits of his death have become your own, including, as Peter says in verse 38, the forgiveness of sins. Praise be to God. And and the Apostle Paul makes this connection really explicit in Acts 22.16. He quotes Ananias. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Oh no. Does that mean that it actually does 
save me in some kind of way. Or I'm not forgiven until I do that thing. No. No, going under the water, coming out of the water does not literally take away sins. Like some sort of magic rite. Purification. No, it's an expression of faith. It's it's one of the ways we call on the name of the Lord. And yet, what happens as a result of our faith in Christ? What what happens, friend? What does he do? He removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. So what what does coming up out of the water symbolize? Being raised with Christ. Because Jesus isn't dead right now. He didn't stay dead. He's alive. He he rose from the grave. Death couldn't hold him. Sin couldn't master him. And in the exact same way, all who have been united to him by faith have been freed from the guilt and power of sin to walk in newness of life. A life that one day is going to include an immortal, healed, perfect body. (laughs) Thanks be to God. Because he rose, we too will rise. So what is baptism? It's a public profession of faith in Christ. It's a picture of our union with Christ. And last, last big picture answer to this first question, it's a sign of the new covenant. Oh no, now here's the big theological words. I'm done. <laughs> Hang with me. Remember we prayed for help with our minds. So let's, let's think about carefully about this. How did the Lord set apart his people Israel before Jesus' death and resurrection? How did he command the Israelites to identify themselves as his people? I'll answer it for you by keeping the Mosaic law under the terms of the old covenant, which included observing the Sabbath. That was the sign of the covenant. And if you were male, being circumcised. Circumcision was a A malediction of sorts. Malediction is just the opposite of a benediction. A curse instead of a blessing, so to speak. In the same way that part of my body has been cut off, may I be cut off from all the blessings of covenant relationship with Yahweh if I fail to observe his law. But from the very beginning with Israel, circumcision of the body also symbolized something else. Circumcision of the heart. A spiritual consecration, if you would, to the Lord's priorities and purposes. But sadly, when when you look back on the history of Israel, you know what you see? You don't see circumcision of the heart. Time and again, those who had been circumcised in the body failed to circumcise their hearts. So God made a promise to establish a new covenant, a new kind of relationship built on oath-bound promises with his people where he would do for them what they had repeatedly failed to do for themselves. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and and be careful to obey my rules. 
Jeremiah jumps on the same train. Chapter 31, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their heart. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And listen, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. You know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. What's going on? Well, it made total sense under the old covenant to tell fellow members of the people of God, fellow Israelites, know the Lord. You don't, but you should. Know the Lord. Why why did it make sense to tell the people of God that? Don't they already know the Lord? Well, no, because being part of the ethnic people of Israel didn't mean you were right with God. It just meant you were part of the ethnic people because God's people were ethnically defined. And that changed in a radical way with the new covenant. The best way to describe it, perhaps, that that, that God's people, who the people of God are, they were reconstituted reformed, refashioned by the internal work of the Spirit. And so now we're identified, we're set apart from the world, not not by a physical marker on our bodies like circumcision, but by our profession of faith in Christ expressed through baptism. So, if you're coming from a Presbyterian background, please pay careful attention to what I'm about to say. Okay? That means baptism is like circumcision in that it functions as a boundary marker, okay? It publicly identifies someone as part of the people of God. But baptism is unlike circumcision under the new covenant in that it's not an expression of future hope, a desire that one day this this baptized person or this baptized baby would turn to Christ and trust Jesus. No, baptism is an expression of present faith, not future hope, present faith, a sign that someone already trusts Jesus. Okay? That, That God has already given them a new heart through the regenerating work of the Spirit. That's not my denominational position. That's Acts 38. Look at that verse, friend. Why, why, why does Peter say, repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit today? What's well, simple? It's because turning away from sin, being united to Christ, receiving the blessing of forgiveness, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you can't separate those things under the new covenant. They're a package deal. So we don't baptize people hoping they'll follow Jesus. We baptize people who have committed to following Jesus in the power of the Spirit. Galatians 3.27 For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, we're praying that one day you put on Christ and follow him. No. As many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Can't separate that. So in summary, covered some ground here. What is baptism? (laughs) Public profession of faith in Christ, picture of union with Christ, and a sign of the new covenant. 
Because who the people of our people of God are has fundamentally changed. It's how the people of God are marked off from the rest of the world today. So that's what it is. We're going to pick up the pace here a bit. Who should participate? Look at verse 39. Who should participate? Each one of these verses kind of answers the next question. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Notice those phrases, for you and for your children or all who are far off. Peter's not just pulling that stuff out of his head, okay? That that is coming from Joel chapter 2. And he just quoted that earlier in Acts 2. Look at verse 17, Acts 2. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit, there's the mark of the new covenant again, on all flesh, young and old, black and white, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. So does that mean all will be saved, therefore all should be baptized? No. No, the promised gift of the Spirit, look at verse 39, is reserved for who? Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And take note, friend, in context, that the call Peter's referring to here is is not the, the universal invitation of the gospel. Okay, Allah, Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. That's the universal invitation, universal call of the gospel. That this call here, it's not a universal call, it's an effectual call. What's that mean? It gets the thing done that it calls for. The call itself causes the response. It's the word of the gospel applied in the power of the spirit that that causes those the Lord has purposed to save to respond to him with repentance and faith. So in context, again, this isn't just my idea. Look at the context. In context, those whom the Lord our God calls to himself, verse 39, are those who what? Experience the grace of conviction in verse 37. It's those who choose to save themselves from this crooked generation in verse 40 by what? Receiving or trusting the word of the gospel in verse 41. Same group. Same group. In other words, who should participate in baptism? Baptism is reserved for those who make a credible profession of faith because the realities baptism signifies are only true of genuine Christians. So, Does that mean that if you think you're a Christian, you should get yourself baptized? I'm really tempted to take a poll here too. (laughs) But I I can sense the squirm. It's like, that felt like one of those questions that I could get wrong, and that's why he's asking it. I'm not trying to shame you, but, but I want you to think about that. Does all we've covered, does it mean that if you think, you think, you think you're a Christian. You should find someone who's willing to agree with your assessment and baptize you and run away from people who don't agree with your assessment 
and hesitate to baptize you. Because daggone it, I know myself better than anybody else. Does it mean that? If you think you're a Christian, should you be baptized? Maybe. (laughs) Okay? Maybe. Why do I say this? Why am I making a squirm? Because did you notice in Acts 2? And by the way, there's nowhere else in Scripture you'll see this. Nobody baptizes themselves. Risk of stating the obvious. You know, rise and baptize thyself. No. No, it's always passive. Why? Why? Because baptism is more than a personal profession of faith in Christ. It's the church's public affirmation of your profession of faith in Christ. It's the way the church says to the watching world, as best we can tell, this one is a follower of Christ. So look here to see Jesus. Back to the mission. So does that mean we should force professing Christians to to go through some sort of probation period or trial by fire where we only agree to baptize them after a multi-year period of carefully evaluated, pastorally assessed obedience? No. No. Baptism is not an Eagle Scout badge given for good behavior. Peter summoned those who were convicted of sin to immediately respond, right? Back to Acts, immediately by professing their faith in Christ through baptism. But please listen to me here. There is another ditch on the other side that I am very concerned about as a pastor. And that's giving people a false assurance of salvation by baptizing them too quickly. Friends, I can't tell you the number of times that in my office over there, I've asked for someone's story and they have said, well, pastor, I was baptized at age six, but I really don't think I became a Christian until I was 16 or 26. I hear that over and over again in this culture. Does God delight to save six-year-olds? Oh, we got to do that again. Follow Josh Kruger. Does God delight to save six-year-olds? Yes. Yes. Why, why else are we as parents preaching Christ to our six-year-olds if we don't believe that? That's what I'm doing with you. Absolutely he does. But when someone is six years old, it's really hard to distinguish a supernatural response to the gospel from a natural desire to do what everyone else is doing or to do whatever they think their family wants them to do because they're six. And it's really tough. So we have to use biblical wisdom, a lot of it. Recognizing that that all the recorded baptisms in Acts, if you read the explicitly recorded ones at least, are adults coming out of a pagan or Jewish context, culturally, where all the family influences were completely against following Jesus. You didn't have grandmothers coming up to six-year-olds saying, I, come on, Johnny, aren't you ready to be baptized? <laughs> no. It's more, it's more like what a Muslim brother or sister would experience today. All the cultural winds go in the opposite direction. 
That, that's worth noting. That, that's worth slowing down and, and thinking about the implications of that. So does that mean, now that I clearly have all your attention, that, that we shouldn't baptize anyone under 18? If they're growing up in a Christian home, the dangers are just too great. No, I didn't say that, and I won't. It does mean that we should be very, very careful about giving young people a false assurance of salvation. Really careful. Not just for their sake. Think about this. That's, that's often all we think about. Well, just them. No, not just for their sake, but for the sake of protecting our public witness to the gospel. There are, I won't give you names, there are, but there are young men and women who grew up in this church, were baptized as kids in this church, and as soon as they hit college, high school, went off somewhere, it became crystal clear, they're not following Jesus at all. That's grievous. Does that mean we have to have a crystal ball? that discerns 10 years out, is this legit? No. We trust the Lord. We pray for wisdom. We ask questions. But it does mean if a child comes up to me or one of your kids comes to me and says, Pastor Matthew, I want to be baptized. Here's what they're going to hear from me. I'll just tell you right now, okay? They're going to hear, it sounds like God is working in your life. That is a precious gift. That's really exciting. Can we talk about that? That's what they're going to hear from me. And in our conversations, I'm going to ask questions like this. What is the gospel? What does it mean to repent of your sins? You won't find language of asking Jesus into your heart anywhere in the Bible. You will find language about repenting and believing. So what does it mean to repent and believe? Do you understand, friend, eight-year-old? Do you understand what what it means for God's people to hold you accountable for following Jesus in an age-appropriate way, and vice versa. Is, is the authenticity of your profession, I won't use all those big words, but this is the category, something that other members of our body besides your mom and dad can recognize and celebrate? That's what this conversation is going to be like. So, bottom line, we don't have a minimum age for baptism at Kingsway because we don't find one in Scripture. And we're a church that is ruled by the word of God. Thanks be to God. But in my pastoral experience, and as a father of three, I think it's often wise, notice the often, not always, often wise to wait until somewhere around the teen years. But there are certainly exceptions to that rule. Um, hear this, parents. If you're struggling with what I've said today, hear my heart on this. In most cases, the risk associated with baptizing a child too quickly, the spiritual harm that is done by granting them, potentially, a false assurance of salvation, that risk far outweighs the disadvantages of going a little bit slower. Especially if you as a parent are faithful to celebrate evidences of God's work in their life all along the way. See, this isn't about saying, oh, haven't met the test yet. I don't think you're a Christian yet. Better luck next time. No. No, we're celebrating God's work all along the way. But we want to make sure that profession of faith is independently credible. No matter how old somebody is, we only baptize those who've received the word of the gospel, placed their faith in Christ, 
committed to obey him accordingly. Let's end with question three. What happens when you're baptized? What happens when you're baptized? Remember here that baptism is not an option. It's not a suggestion. Repent and be baptized is a command. It is how you obey Christ. It's, it's how you announce to the church and to the world, I'm going to follow Jesus. And the church says, we agree. <laughs> to borrow some metaphors, it's, it's how you nail your flag to the mast. Or how you put on the team uniform. Or how you take an oath of citizenship in the kingdom of God, so to speak. And there's always blessing when we choose to obey the Lord, right? Well, every time. And, and he often uses baptism. I've been praying for that this morning as we have baptisms in a few minutes. He often uses baptism to, to strengthen our assurance of salvation. What's up with that? Well, because baptism, what we're going to see take place this morning for these individuals, it, it's an objective, visible, tangible, I can feel the water on my body kind of reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for them. That they've died with Christ. You've died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. Who you are has fundamentally changed. You're, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're a child of God. A, a deep assurance of those realities is a precious gift and often comes with baptism. And yet, hear this, baptism isn't just about what you're doing. It's about what the church is doing. It's the initial way we exercise the authority Jesus has given us to identify someone as one of Jesus' disciples so the world knows where to look to see Jesus. We publicly recognize them in the eyes of the watching world. Look at verse 41. So clear here. So those who received his word were baptized and the party got started. No, not yet at least. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? To the local church in Jerusalem. Added to the church. The visible local expression of the body of Christ. And that makes a ton of sense if you stop at this point and just take a knee and think about what, what is baptism in a spiritual sense? What is it saying? What, what is it all about? Think about this. When you're united to Christ, who else are you united to as a result? The church. Why? Because you can't be united to the head without being united to the body. There are no headless bodies or bodiless heads around here. You can't claim, I've got Jesus. Yeah, I don't know about the body thing. I just, I got over that in my teen years because I saw a lot of legalism and I was offended and hurt. I'm just kind of done with that. But I love you. You don't. Because you don't love his bride. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we're baptized into one body. And it is striking. Look at verse 41, how Luke describes church membership as a spiritual reality created by baptism. Notice, he doesn't say, so those who received his word were baptized, and then from that number, 3,000 people later became members of the church. No, they received the word, they were baptized, and that meant 3,000 were added to the church. In other words, you could say 3,000 souls were added, 
Or you could say, opposite side of the same coin, 3,000 souls received the word and were baptized. Same thing. What's the implication? The mere presence of faith in Christ is insufficient for church membership. That faith must be professed in the way God requires. Because God has tied the church's public judgment to the public sacrament of baptism. You you can think someone is a Christian. They may very well call themselves a Christian. But friends, here's the point. Jesus hasn't given us liberty to build a different front door to the family of the church. He told us what that door is. It's baptism. And that lines up with Matthew 28, which is recited at all kinds of mission conferences and people never seem to be troubled by, right? What does that command us? Great commission. Go and make disciples by baptizing people. It's kind of important. (laughs) Why? Because baptism is how God has charged us as a congregation to publicly welcome his people into the family of God. He hasn't just said, well, be welcoming and loving and good luck with that. He's told us how to welcome people and he's given us a front door. You profess your faith in me this way. That's a command. Church, you affirm genuine professions in this way. That too is a command. So it's really unwise and disobedient to scripture if we make baptism and membership separate things. If we baptize people and postpone membership, We're basically saying we are thrilled to recognize you as a member of the body of Christ, but we are not going to hold you accountable for following Jesus. We are happy to affirm your profession of faith and make you a cake, but we are not committing to oversee it and loving you enough by holding you accountable to do what you just professed you will do. And my question for you, friends, is that love? Is it loving to just affirm a profession, not oversee it? No. No. You won't find that anywhere in Scripture. People are baptized. The same people are added. It harms a Christian when we separate them. It denigrates our witness to the world. And it reinforces our American tendency to privatize a sacrament that is fundamentally a corporate thing. And that is why I am so excited. We're going to have three women baptized this morning who are formally joining our church next Sunday. But know this, in a critical sense, our spiritual responsibility for their lives doesn't begin on July 9. It begins today. Right now. Because baptism and membership are two sides of the same coin. I love, I love in verse 41 that Luke reminds us all this is about the care of souls. Do you catch that word? Last word. He doesn't say, and they were out of that day 3,000 people. That's souls. Your soul, my friend, is an exceedingly precious thing to God. Church membership is all about what's not all about having your name on a list in the office that needs dusted every quarter. 
It's about the care of your soul. A precious soul. It's not an optional right. It's not a badge of honor for the super Christian. Membership enacted through baptism is God's plan to care for your soul. Don't run away from that. Don't say, well, different Christians have different opinions, so I'll just go back to Jesus. No, the care of your soul matters too much, friend. So if I've raised a thousand questions, and I can feel some of them, come and talk. Come and talk. Especially if you're a parent, you're walking through this with one of your kids. That's why we're here as a family, right? We don't have to work through all this in isolation. Let's keep talking. I'll leave you with this, and then Chris will join me at the baptismal. Baptism fundamentally. Put it in a sentence. It's this. The church's public affirmation of a profession of faith signifying a believer's entrance into covenant relationship with God and his people. That's exactly what we're doing this morning. So let's pray for the folks that are going to be baptized. And then Chris, if you would join me. Father, we are so grateful so thankful that you have given us a mission with your authority and a front door of your design. And we pray this morning as we affirm these professions of faith that you would strengthen assurance of salvation for these women. That you would give them an assurance that who they are has fundamentally changed as they profess their faith and their repentance in you, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can affirm as a body these professions and agree, especially next Sunday, to hold them accountable, to keep running hard after you. Thank you for the way you're going to use these sisters to do the same for us, Father. We ask for your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen.